Hey, Church of the Valley family. It's nice to be with you this Independence Day weekend where we celebrate the freedoms and liberties that we have adopted if we're citizens of the United States of America. We're going to begin a new series today, and over the next many weeks, we're going to tackle the book of 1 Peter, where much of what we're going to talk about over and through this book is about the reality that as Christians, our citizenship is not in this world. In fact, it's not in this country, but it's of heaven. Because God decided to come down among us and live a life that we could not live, die a gruesome death on a cross for the sins of mankind and physically rise from the dead. And because of that message and truth, we have been adopted by a greater power, a more important leader, and an even mightier kingdom than the United States of America. We are citizens of heaven who have been adopted into the kingdom of God, and that king is the greatest king. He's not a tiger king or a president. He's not a monarch or a prime minister. He is the king of the kingdom of God. And I, for one, am incredibly appreciative that even though he knew me at my worst, he chose to adopt me into his kingdom and into his family. Today, we begin this new series one that I'm excited about. In fact, I've been waiting a very long time to teach through the book of 1 Peter, and we're calling this series Proving Ground, a study on the trials and suffering in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why 1 Peter? And why are we calling it Proving Ground? Well, we're going to answer that. But I want us to begin with the context in which this book was written, because that will shed a lot more light on this book of the Bible, this letter written by the Apostle Peter to a church that was going through it in a pretty monumental way. It'd be easy to look at the book of Peter and attempt to superimpose our circumstance into what Peter was speaking about. We know this letter is about suffering and going through trials, and today we feel that, don't we? It's not that we don't have struggles or trials and circumstances that don't matter. We do. But we, as we begin the book of 1 Peter, I want to bring us up to speed about the trials that Christians in Rome were dealing with in the first century. The date was July 19th, 64 AD. The setting was Rome, Italy, and the circumstance was that Nero was the emperor. And Nero had decided to set the entire city on fire while blaming a radical group of men and women who were known as Christians for the towering inferno. Nero not only had a bit of a God complex, but he was quite eccentric in that he felt he always needed to be building, as if he, if he were not building, he felt he wasn't progressing, similar to what Sarah Winchester did at what we know as the Winchester Mystery House, which is literally less than a mile that way. And so the only way for Nero to experience this or feel like he was progressing was to keep building, was to burn down everything that currently existed because he didn't want to build on top of someone else's work, but he wanted to be the master builder of Rome. So he set fires that didn't only make people homeless, but because he had no care for human life also killed many people. And when the people started to question who had done this, he pointed to Christians who were misunderstood and disliked because of their belief that Jesus, a carpenter, a man, was actually God. So Nero blamed, arrested, and killed many Christians. He burned many Christians alive. He took households that had converted to Christianity, and he burned them on crucifix and poles and left them burning many, many miles coming into the city so that if you were a 
uh, uh, army from another country or empire trying to invade Rome, you would see that they meant business by having these people, these unfortunately human torches along the street line as you would walk towards the city. Now, I'm sorry for the gruesome details, but I share that because that is the context in which Peter is writing his letter. He is writing to exiled Christians who have fled from Rome and gone into hiding because of the fear of Nero and the Roman Empire. Peter, the spokesperson for the apostles and disciples, he writes this letter, hence the letter 1 Peter, to Christians who have had their families murdered, and Peter writes with the authority that God has entrusted him this letter of encouragement. It is, and all of it is in the midst of extreme suffering. I don't want to take away from the reality that what we are living in today is difficult. Being isolated from friends and family is not easy. It is difficult. It is hard. And living in a world where different types of news outlets and different Counties are treating this pandemic completely differently. It's also very confusing, and it's unfortunately in a lot of ways detrimental to our safety. But this letter is written by Peter to Christians in the early church in the midst of some of the most extreme persecution the church of Jesus Christ has ever experienced, and fear for their lives, not because of sickness, but because of murder. So that's the context. Now let's look at the author. Let's begin in this incredibly rich book of the Bible, verse 1. Here's what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect and exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter, the leader of the apostles, the spokesperson for the apostles, a fisherman that Jesus Christ called to follow him, and Peter laid down his net and followed him. We see this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. As Matthew writes, he says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, being Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Peter, who had been a fisherman, which Jewish tradition tended to infer that one who would take up their father's profession was one that could not cut it in the religious field of being a student to a rabbi. They did not, they did not excel in memorizing the first five books of what we know as the Old Testament. They didn't interpret the scriptures well. And because of this, the rabbis would not call them to be their disciples. But Jesus this rabbi who didn't do it like everyone else, he was a bit of a makeshift rabbi, seemed to know what others didn't know and called Peter to follow him. And he dropped his net and Jesus made him a fisher of men. Peter becomes a spokesperson, this leader of the apostles from what we see in scripture. And we can conclude a few things about Peter through what is written in the scriptures. In fact, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, it says this, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in a bed with a fever. Now we can deduct from this that Peter at least is in his later teens, if not older than that, because Peter was married. Now I've read different traditions that believe that Peter also had children, but we cannot confirm that as it was not included in the scriptures to say, yes, he had children. So did he? Possibly, probably, but do we say yes for sure? Well, not biblically. 
And that is why, as we study later on in this book in particular, we can deduct what we are sure of from Scripture and what it actually says without assuming things that aren't written. See, Peter's wife was not named, nor included in the biblical accounts. But as we see in the book of Matthew, Jesus went to Peter's house where Jesus came in contact with Peter's mother-in-law. Well, what's required in order to have a mother-in-law? A spouse. See what I did there? So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle, uh, it's known as a sent one by the Lord to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. The entire book of Acts, which is written by the physician Luke, was an account of the acts or the actions of the apostles as they were led by the Holy Spirit. Disciples, or disciples, as my son Boston says, and apostles are a little bit different. The disciples generally referred to the 12 men that Jesus was discipling, including Judas, who most of us are familiar with, but there were many other disciples that followed Jesus and were with him during his earthly ministry. The apostles were the 12, and then eventually the 13, including Paul, that Jesus intentionally appointed to carry his authority to write the New Testament and further the gospel all over Asia Minor. In Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 20, it says this, as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Paul is pointing out that the, the apostles were the ones who wrote the New Testament and the prophets were the ones that he, are spoken of to represent the Old Testament being written. And then in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, talking about the apostles, here's what it says. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. It was a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. So now we have these 11 because Judas is no longer involved in this. He's, he's passed away. And this is after Jesus has ascended to heaven. And we're getting to look and see who these apostles are. And then in chapter 1 of Acts, verses 23 through 26, it talks about naming the 12th. So they nominated, here's what it says, they nominated two men. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. So now we have the 12 apostles and we have these men who had seen Jesus alive after he had died and Jesus had appointed them the 11 and then the apostles praying to God before the Holy Spirit had come, cast lots to figure out who should be the 12th apostle. But that's the apostleship that Peter is a part of, that he's the leader of, but let's see where he first, why a lot of people see him as the leader and the spokesperson. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and in verse 13, it says this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. 
But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, Peter, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. People have differed in their interpretation of what this meant when Jesus spoke about Peter being the rock. There are different views about what Jesus meant when he said that he would build his church. And some people think it's on Peter, that he was going to be the original pope, and all of that kind of stuff that doesn't really connect with what the text really says. But here is what I believe makes the most sense biblically, because Jesus named him Peter, which is Petros. It means little rock. He says that the rock, the foundation of the church is built on this, the confession that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, the confession that Jesus Christ is the Christ. He is the son of the living God and that this message, the gospel message, is one that from that day forward justified people who were without hope because it is the message of the gospel exemplified in the person and work of Jesus and it's because of Jesus that any of us can be saved. So in, in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11, talking about confession, Paul is speaking to the church in Rome and he says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As <clears throat> For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess and your, profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." That doesn't assume that if you just yell Jesus' name because you stubbed your toe, that means you're calling upon the Lord. What that means is that you also confess that Jesus is the Christ. You understand that his perfect life lived, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his exaltation in the heavens. All of it is so you can be saved, that you can know that you can't work your way to God, but God worked his way to you and you put all your faith and trust in him. So Peter was the example that God used as the one who confessed to the reality that he believed Jesus was the Messiah. Belief and confession went hand in hand. And that's why we as Church of the Valley encourage you to, let me use a word that we don't normally use, and it's not a real word, but we use it, to gospelize one another, to discuss the gospel, to think through the gospel as your lens for the Bible and doing life, to confess your belief that Jesus is Lord while confessing that you sin and repenting, changing direction, repenting of your sin. So Peter was the spokesperson and he was the example of the confession that Jesus is the Christ. But Peter is also the guy that constantly stuck his foot in his mouth. He seemed to always be ready, shoot, aim. That's kind of where Peter was. He rebuked Jesus for saying when Jesus claimed that he was going to go to the cross and die for people's sins, and then Peter rebukes him. He cut off the ear of the guard attempting to seize Jesus so Jesus could go to the cross. 
And then after Jesus has been taken away, he ends up denying Christ three times as Jesus said that he would. One phenomenal argument for the truth of scripture is that for Peter, who had so much responsibility, was given so much responsibility by the Lord and by the early church, he's known as the leader of all the apostles. He was not without scandal. He was not without mistakes. And scripture constantly would point that out. So the argument goes like this. If you're going to create a book to believe in, you will not tarnish the reputation of those who are the main players in the story. And as some of us or many of us had watched a documentary on YouTube and also on iTunes known as the American Gospel, one of the preachers in that documentary said this, do you see that the Bible takes care to tar every single biblical figure but one? By Dr. Brian Chappelle, seen in the American Gospel. The point is that in the Bible, we don't need to follow anyone but Jesus. You and I don't need to be like Peter. We don't need to be like Paul. That's not who we're attempting to follow. We're not trying to attempt to follow John or James. We don't need to try to conjure up as much faith as Moses or conjure up as much faith as David. It's not even to try to be like Jesus. And let me let that sit for a second because I think so many of us have thought, well, what would Jesus do? And we just have to emulate it. Because many try to emulate Jesus without trusting him. Our entire faith is built on believing, confessing, and living in the reality that Jesus is the Christ. And out of that, God can have his way in our lives to make us more like him. We don't need to try to be more like Jesus. We need to trust and obey him so God can transform us as he sees fit. So verse 1, one more time, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect and exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter pens his letter as he was led by the Holy Spirit to those Christians who had been spread out from Rome and had dealt with fires and turmoil that was happening through Nero and the Roman Empire. And these Christians, they were named exiles or in other translations, pilgrims. They were sojourners. They were tourists. These were the individuals who had been scattered all around the Mediterranean Sea, and Peter's letter was an act of encouragement to them all to persevere in such a difficult time. Now, we're not going to dive deep into these different places, at least this week, maybe another time, but look at these places that Peter mentions. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia were all provinces in modern-day Turkey. And they were where these Christians had gone after having to deal with the tyranny of the Roman Empire. Verse 2, who, these exiles who were scattered to these places, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through his sanctifying work of his spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. There is so much in this verse that with all the context that I just wanted to cover, we may not flesh out all that I want to, but there is an overarching theme of what I see in the salutation, this greeting that Peter is making to these exiled Christians. Here's what it is. Christians are God's possession because of God's grace. Christians are God's possession because of God's grace. 
Now, churches have been split. Denominations have been formed over arguing God's predetermining nature. Known as a word that some of us cringe at, predestination or election. God's choosing of those who would receive salvation. But I think a lot of us want to fight a fight that most of us are not qualified to enter into. I know for a lot of us, we may cringe. We may even get angry at the idea that God predetermines those who come into relationship with him. And we argue and we fight because we are limited in our capacity and we can't fathom that God would choose some while not choosing others. But what we rarely stop and think about is that this was not a made-up idea by man. This was biblical. This is in the text. It says this, so we have to do something with it. Peter in verse 1 uses the elect in verse 1. And then he, in verse 2, he uses chosen and foreknowledge. And all that language points to God's sovereign power. That's what this is about. Sovereign power over salvation. The gift that he chooses to give people who receive it by faith. So I don't want to go far into the weeds regarding this and lose sight of what Peter is communicating in this salutation, a greeting to people, but I'll say this. Salvation is the Lord's. Okay? Like, do you, can you agree with me on that? Salvation comes from the Lord. It is the Lord's to give. In fact, in Psalm chapter 3, verse 8, it says, From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. In Psalm chapter 62, verse 1, truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, which we studied a few years ago, Jonah said, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And this isn't just an Old Testament idea. It's a New Testament idea of God gifting salvation. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, Paul, writing to the young pastor Timothy, says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Salvation is the Lord's. It is a gift that he gives. We don't earn it or attain it or even secure it. Even the faith that we receive is through a gift of God's. Let me show you Ephesians chapter 2. It almost doesn't feel like a sermon unless we quote Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So we already know grace is a gift, but according to this, it doesn't differentiate. Grace and faith is a gift from the Lord so that no one can boast by doing what they do. So without diving deep into foreknowledge and predestination, which I did, Back in August of 2017, I had just become the pastor at the church and we did a series on the book of Ephesians and the very second sermon I did, it was called Predetermining. I taught on this. And so feel free to go back and watch that. I look totally different. I'd encourage you to do that. But if you wanna talk about predestination, let's not talk until you've watched that sermon. 
But I want you to see this. I want you to see that every believer, every truly redeemed follower of Jesus is God's possession. They are gifted with salvation because of God's grace. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. And we got, Christians got, what we did not deserve in salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say it simply. God did it. We didn't. So let me speak to those of us who are egomaniacs in remission. If you live this Christian life with a swagger of believing that you did something to be saved or that you earned the gift that was freely given to you by God, or if you believe that God is lucky to have you because of all that you do for him, repent. Get on your face. Ask God for forgiveness for believing that you had anything to do with your salvation. Because once you realize truly that you didn't, the gospel becomes the most beautiful thing you'll ever realize, experience, or know. And some of you may hear that and go, that's a cop-out. Why aren't you willing to argue about predestination? (laughs) I'm willing. I used to do it when I had a lot more energy and I was a lot less mature. But you know what I realized? All that matters is that you understand that you are saved by grace, getting what you don't deserve in Jesus Christ, through faith, which is also a gift from God, and in Christ, that it's all Jesus and it's not you. And how you got there, if you understand that or not, is part of God's grace to you. And for me, my understanding of God's sovereign nature and salvation, for me, is like a warm blanket that I can rest in and rest with because I know my right standing before God was not my idea. It was his. And because of that, I get to give him praise rather than myself. So let's look at verse two one more time. It says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. We have been chosen by God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now pause. What does that mean? It means we are saved by God and for God to sanctify us. Sanctification is the refining process of us looking more like Jesus. Make sure you write that down. Sanctification is the refining process of us looking more like Jesus. But how? Namely, growing in the fruit of the Spirit, holistically, because we become more patient and kind and loving and peaceful and joyful and faithful and self-controlled and abounding in goodness. How? Does that take place by just getting older? No. It's through what Peter says right after, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. We don't follow him because it makes us more holy. We follow him because spiritually he has already made us holy and our lives get to back up our status with God, which is a forgiven people who live for Jesus. Now, let me say that one more time because I don't want you to miss it. It's that important. We don't follow him because it makes us more holy. We follow him because spiritually he has already made us holy. We are set apart and our lives get to back up our status with God, which is a forgiven people who live their lives for Jesus. We are sprinkled with his blood, which represents the forgiveness of sins that we have been given through the gift of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. We didn't do anything to get forgiven, but trust in the one who gives forgiveness, Jesus, our King. 
And then he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. What a wonderful conclusion to his greeting to these Christians. As if to say, may God's gift of salvation in grace and the peace that he provides frame your life and your day. May the grace getting what you don't deserve and the peace that comes from God be the things that you live in and embrace as Christians. And remember who he's talking to. He's talking to people that are dealing with incredible difficulty and suffering, and he wants to encourage them that grace and peace are available because of their right standing with God. Because as we spoke about, these people were shook. Either they had experienced great persecution themselves, or people that they cared about had been martyred or imprisoned for their faith. And what the first century Christians dealt with in persecution and what we're dealing with today They're not only not in the same ballpark, they're different sports altogether. We are dealing with a pandemic that does not discriminate, but can affect any and all of us. Christians were discriminated against because they came in the name of the Lord. But where these things are similar is that we and they had the opportunity to be Christ-like, to care for those who are at risk and in need of shelter and in need of protection. So why are we calling this series Proving Ground? For one, it's because this letter does a great job of communicating what those who have been redeemed by the Holy Spirit are actually made of. That they go through trials, but God uses them to prove something in them and that their Christian life isn't so much a long walk as it is a marathon of ups and downs, breaks and falls. But it is all leading and urging towards something that is beautiful and eternal. I've been running a lot which many of you know because pretty much I just talk about Jesus and running these days. And a few weeks back, I took my family on a vacation near Yosemite to a town called Mariposa, and my wife and I, who had been running together six days a week, every week, decided that we're going to go run in the hills because that's where the house was. And so we went and ran right outside the front yard and then started to run up some hills. And here's the thing about my knees and my ankles. They are not conducive to running in hills. I'm just not good at it. My legs aren't built for it. And pretty quickly, I got a pretty epic shin splint. And it was annoying, but I kept running on it. And I kept running on it in hills. And we were, Aaron and I have been working towards a marathon. So I didn't want to lower our mileage too much because I was training and preparing for the 26.2 mile run the following week. Then that Saturday, the Saturday right after we had been on vacation, we decided to run to the Cheney's house. It was going to be 12 miles there, 12 miles back. It was going to be a really good 24-mile run. And so the week following, we were ready to run the marathon distance. That was the whole goal. We were working up towards it. But this run, when we went to the Cheney's, had the benefit of we had dropped off a second pair of shoes and a change of clothes so we could feel more fresh when we were running back. And then on top of that, not only running to the Cheney's, we had Keith and Kat Belmar who rode support for us on their bikes. And when we needed water or we needed someone to press the, the button so we could go through the light legally, they would press the walk button for us. And so we ran to the Cheney's house and then we were running back and at roughly mile 23, right before we were going to finish our 24 mile run, Aaron and I looked at each other and we said, let's just go for the the marathon distance. Well, good news is we made it and it felt great to be able to say that we ran a marathon, especially because less about three months prior, the farthest I had ever ran in my entire life was six miles. But here's where I made a mistake. After we ran it, I didn't recoup at all. 
I didn't rest at all. The very next day, I ran a really quick four miles. And then the coming week, I ran a ton of miles that week. And then the following Saturday, I ran a really fast half marathon. And I saved 24 minutes from the half marathon, the first one I had ever done just five weeks before. But now I'm hurt. And now I'm struggling to walk. So why do I tell you all of that? So you won't have to ask me about my marathon? No, I want you to. Like, it was awesome. But I want to point out the reality that many of us are tired. Parents are tired from doing online school with their children for uh, the end part of the school year. People who are single may be tired of feeling isolated. People with families may be tired of being around their families, if they're honest. And I want to affirm and encourage you as your pastor and as your friend to rest. To remember that Jesus Christ is our rest, the word says. To take walks with him if you can. And to attempt to remember that even in the middle of a pandemic, God is still God. And we need to find a new pace of life that is sustainable in our current normal where we're going to burn out or get injured or worse. I'm going on my second week of not running. And the first week, I dusted off my bike and I went and rode a bunch of miles. And it was fun. It wasn't like running, but it was still good to be out there and be exercising. But it actually hurt my shin more than it helped me recover. So this week and next week, and I'm saying this to you, I guess, to have you hold me accountable, I'm staying off of my feet. I'm looking towards and anticipating when I can run again in about two weeks, even if it's a short run at a slow speed. Running especially marathon running, is such an illustration for the Christian life. And I know right now I am in a season of healing from going way too hard. It's frustrating when you want to be a doer and just do, but it's necessary in our Christian walk to rest and trust God in this season of life and maybe trust him more than we did back when we had an unsustainable pace of life just a few months ago. So there's two more things I want to tell you. First, offering want to thank those who are giving faithfully to the community. If you're part of COV, want to encourage you to continue to give. For those of you who are part of this community that aren't giving, I want to encourage you to because it is an act of worship and it is opportunity that you have to show yourself where your faith is, is at and who it's in. But I just, I appreciate that this community is faithful to give and I want to keep encouraging you to do so because not only is it an act of worship, but it is in a way that we as the leadership of Church of the Valley, the staff of Church of the Valley, can not only create playlists, but we can care for people that are hurting. We can love people who need love. We can point people to Jesus both online and through this community of believers. But it requires that God uses what you give. And so I want to encourage you to continue to give faithfully as you have. Second thing before I conclude, three years ago today, we're filming this on July 1st, Wednesday, July 1st, 2020. Three years ago today, I became the lead pastor of Church of the Valley officially. I was voted in. And for some of you, you're like, it's been three years already? And for some of you or some of us, you're like, it's only been three years? <laughs> But either way, God has been a mighty fortress and an amazing counselor and a provider for us as a community. We have strived to make Jesus the point and the gospel of first importance. So today we have a video that's going to play right after this sermon. And so if you're on the playlist, it should come up right ne next. If you're not on the playlist, I'd encourage you to look for the, the video that says three years at COV. 
And it's going to commemorate what God has been doing, not just in these 36 months, but through the people of Church of the Valley over this time. When it was just a small church plant compelled together who decided to merge with Church of the Valley that had been around for 65 years. And officially we merged together when I became the lead pastor of Church of the Valley on July 1st, 2017. So for those of you that were here prior to me coming to be the sixth lead pastor in Church of the Valley history, I wanna thank you for trusting God and allowing me to be your pastor and your friend. I know change was hard, especially as the church changed a lot in the first few weeks and months after myself and my family and, and uh, many from the church plant came and became a part of Church of the Valley as a family. But I just wanna thank you for continuing to be led by God's spirit, even though many of the faces in leadership changed. And for those of you who are part of Compelled Together and came with us to COV, you'll never know how much I appreciate you and the difference that God has made in me because of you and your trust of God and the vision that I believe he gave us to equip doers of the word and to grow into the likeness of Jesus together. And lastly, to those of you who have become part of COV in the past three years, maybe you weren't here before we got here, maybe, maybe you weren't part of the church plant, maybe you came here the first week that we ever worshiped here as a community, like the Francos, just saw us online and ended up here. Or maybe you're someone who's just started worshiping with us since the pandemic started and you've engaged in the playlist, you've engaged in the Zoom calls and the community groups and things like that. I wanna thank everybody that's come here after we got here and just praise God for you because you have been a heaven send. You have become part of the ethos, the culture of Church of the Valley, of who COV is now, which is a culture that wants to lift up Jesus Christ no matter what, while praising and obeying and proclaiming the truth of the gospel in the person and work of Jesus with both our mouths and our lives every day. So I'm gonna pray for us. And then I'd encourage you to watch this video of this slideshow of the past three years since myself and a few of us got here. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the men and women and children on this playlist that have been watching this message. I pray that your word would touch their lives in such a way that they would put into practice what you taught us today. And Lord, I pray that you would be, continue to use these playlists until we can gather together as a community safely and see one another and love on one another in person. God, I thank you for your work in this community, and I pray that you would take the offering, whatever it is, through whoever gives, that you would take it to make more disciples of people of every race, of, of every possible background, and that you would make disciples of nations and generations for the glory of your name in a way that we would never expect. We love you, Lord, and as we start the book of 1 Peter, as we start this series called Proving Ground, God, I ask that you would use this to shape us and transform us to look more like Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.